something more directly related uh, to Advent. But these next verses that we come to in Hebrews uh, are so directly applicable to Advent, I couldn't, just couldn't uh, pass them up. So we're going to spend this one more week in Hebrews and then go in some other direction uh, for the next few weeks until uh, during the Advent season until Christmas. <clears throat> Let me read it. Um, I'll, I'll start with verse 1, although we talked about verse 1. And we're actually, our text is verse 2 to 4, but let me start with verse 1. Seeing, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Last week we talked about this sports metaphor present in this text, a whole stadium full of uh, fans, the, the, the cloud of witnesses, watching how we play out the faith down on the field when it's our turn. Well, that metaphor is still here, though the, the picture changes slightly in verse 2. Now it's not just the alumni or the homecoming game that fills the stands with the greats of the past. Now it's Founders Day, the pioneer of our faith, the only one who ever played flawlessly on this field is the royal governor of the games. So what really matters is not the approval of the other athletes or even the applause of the greats who sit in the stands watching. What really matters is the approval of his majesty, the king. This morning we have one great theme, although it breaks into three parts. One great theme, and that theme is simply focus your faith on Jesus. Focus your faith on Jesus. The expression used here is fix your eyes on Jesus. Obviously, neither we nor the recipients of the book of Hebrews way back when could see Jesus with our eyes. Something more must be in view here. It's not about our eyes per se. The word translated fix is a means simply to keep thinking about without having one's attention distracted. So it's like when we say, keep your eye on the ball. If you're coaching someone on how to bat in a baseball game, uh, that could be taken rather literally, although not actually literally. Your eye is not on the ball, but you're watching that ball until, until it contacts your bat. Pretty literal. But if you're talking in a business context to an employee who's kind of sloughing off and not paying much attention, say, you've got to keep your eye on the ball here. We need better productivity. Now, you're not talking about a literal thing at all. You're using a metaphor that has to do with focus, focus. And similarly, fix your eyes on Jesus. It's not talking about staring at Jesus, even if we could see him. In this context, it's a metaphor of what our faith looks like, where our faith, our hope is centered, and the need to keep it centered there, fixed on the right thing. In other words, focus your faith on Jesus. 
or focus on Jesus in faith would be another way of saying it. Why? So why should we do that? Well, our text actually gives us three reasons here. Um, Things that Jesus did which should capture our attention and hold our attention. I'll just tell you what they are. Uh, They're right in the text. Fix your eyes on Jesus. First of all, he's the author and perfecter of our faith. Secondly, he's the one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame. And thirdly, he's the one who sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So we're going to talk about each of those three. First of all, fix your faith on Jesus, for he is our only hope. Fix your eyes on Jesus, for he is our only hope. Nowadays, people talk about faith as if we're simply... A uh, generic human spirituality. Everybody's got faith. Everyone has got spirituality. The assumption is that everyone really has the same thing, just in different forms. So the Christian's faith in Jesus is considered by many as just your particular flavor of human spirituality. You, you exercise in your option just like I exercise my option and someone else exercises there. It's kind of like make your own Sunday, you know? The spirituality is asking, we just put our different toppings on it. But it doesn't really matter, we all have the same thing. But here we learn that in regard to the faith, which we read earlier, without which no one can please God, in regard to the faith by which, quote, we are commended by God, In other words, in regard to the faith that's being discussed here in Hebrews, there is only one authentic faith, that which has its origin and its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ, the author and finisher of our faith. First, Jesus is the author, the founder of our faith. He is the one who along with the rest of the Godhead, the Father and the Spirit, in the impenetrable mystery of eternity past, devised and decreed a plan to save us fallen creatures. A plan that involved him taking on the humanity he created, and as a man suffering humiliation and death for our salvation. He's the author. He's the forerunner of our faith, who long before his birth was prefigured in the stories and the songs and the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. He's the one who predetermined the course that we're now running, the struggles which inevitably come to those who believe. And he's the one who blazed the path first, The one who as a man actually ran this course of faith. Actually trusted in his father. Actually persevered to the end. In other words, true faith originates in Christ Jesus. The gospel is his design and he is the one that brought it about. He is the world's only hope. So fix your eyes, fix your faith on Jesus. He's also the perfecter of our faith. The Apostle Paul explained that all the promises of God through all the centuries have their yes, their amen in Jesus. In other words, he's the fulfiller of the gospel. He's the goal of the gospel. He's the point of all that God has said and done over the centuries. 
From Genesis to Revelation, the Bible points us to Jesus. He's the centerpiece of God's saving plan. He fulfills every part of, of Revelation to us in the scripture, every facet, at every level of meaning, there's Jesus. Therefore, this race that we're running, this race of, of, that requires faith, is all about knowing him. The Christian life is not just some calculated, uh, impersonal thing that you keep the rules. We, we turn it into that sometimes, to just keep the law, that's what you have to do. No. No, is it just some other variety of human spirituality, however you want to define it? No, it's all about knowing Jesus. Jesus himself said that in his prayer to his, to his father in John 17. He says, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus is our only hope. So fix your faith on him. This had special meaning for these Jewish believers who were the first recipients of the book of Hebrews. They were being tempted to think that they could abandon Jesus because there's persecution in believing in Jesus. And just go back and be good Jews and keep the law. And that would be okay. But there's no such valid religion anymore. Jesus is the one who is the focus and the fulfiller and the perfecter of everything written in the law. All of that points to him. So here that thinking is being challenged. To abandon Jesus is to be left with nothing. He's the origin and the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. He is our only hope for salvation. You must fix your faith on him. Now, there's a second reason to focus our faith on Jesus, which gives us our second point. Focus your faith on Jesus, for he focused on saving you. Focus your faith on Jesus, for he focused on saving you. We see this truth in the phrase, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. It's easy for us to think about Advent as um, counting down the days, uh, the next 25 days till we get to Christmas. That's probably how you thought about it as a child, if you thought about it at all. It was just a waiting game uh, to count the days till we get there. In reality, Advent's different. In reality, in Advent, we join with the saints of old who persevered, waiting for the Messiah's appearing as we now persevere, waiting for his second coming. We're just like them. Uh, it, we, we, it requires the same kind of faith. Advent is about waiting and persevering and even enduring Believing that something yet to come is worth the pain of endurance today. Throughout the previous chapter, we saw many such people who did that. A whole list who waited, waited, died still waiting. Oh, but here in, chapter, here in verse 2, the one who is the ultimate example of endurance, the, the paradigm of perseverance, is none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He didn't just wait. He endured scorn and opposition from wicked men. And he didn't just endure. He suffered the humiliating shame and pain of crucifixion. 
And he didn't just suffer as one trapped by circumstances, perhaps cursing God for letting him get in this situation. He gave up his life in joyful expectation of your salvation. So in Advent, we learn to persevere in expectation of the glorious fulfillment of our salvation, just like our Savior persevered in expectation of the joy of winning our salvation for us. In life and in death, Jesus was focused on saving you. Now focus your faith on him. And folks, our gratitude for such salvation needs to change our attitude. When we look on down to verse 3, we find that the antidote to growing weary and losing heart is to keep our eyes on Jesus. When we stop looking at Jesus, we begin to think that opposition is abnormal. We begin to think God is not being fair with us. That, that we've endured enough already. But when we constantly focus on Jesus, we realize that people only treat us like they treated him. It's all pretty normal in this fearful, fallen world. You see, our expectations get rearranged when they're focused on Jesus. And this is especially important in our day, for these days we think we all have a right to live pain-free, to have lots of convenience, to be constantly stroked by others uh, looking after us, to, to not have to put up with any real opposition or disagreement. And so a whole different kind of Christianity has grown up, a faith that does not include any hardship, any sacrifice, any pain, any suffering. Look around you. It's everywhere. Only having our eyes fixed on Jesus will deliver us from that crazy, wrong-headed kind of Christianity. In fact, when we get to verse 4, it goes even further, issuing an outright rebuke. There we read, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Or as we might paraphrase it, they haven't hung you on a cross yet. Folks, self-pity is one of the most deadly things that can happen to you. It will eat your soul like cancer. It will defile you and take others down with you. It will turn you away from the faith and cause you to be lost forever. Self-pity self and the bitterness it breeds is deadly to your soul. I make a point of this because it's always with us. Though I do not know, let me just be clear, I do not know of any such case going on right now. I would not be surprised to find out that there were chapel people who are intentionally staying away from our fellowship right now, depriving themselves of, uh, of the, the fellowship, depriving themselves of, of the life-giving food of God's word because they're feeling sorry for themselves 
Or, or they're bitter because someone didn't feel sorry for them enough. It happens all the time. I could not possibly recount all the cases that I know of that. But Jesus says, in effect, get real. Until they have hung you on a cross like they did me, you have no reason to feel sorry for yourself. So it's time to adjourn this pity party and get back to the struggle against sin, get back to the battle for the faith. Jesus has focused on the joy of saving you all the way to his death. Now you focus on trusting him with joy all the way to your death. Finally, there's a third reason to focus on faith in Jesus. Focus on faith in Jesus, for he is able to help you. He is able to help you. When studying the Bible, there's a question which we always need to be asking. It sounds a bit trite. No, actually, it sounds irreverent. But it is a key to meaningful understanding of the Scripture. The question is this. So what? So what? Or stated another way, what difference does it make? To study and gain all kinds of Bible knowledge without ever asking that question is a total waste of time. For if what we learn from God's word makes no difference in our life, it's just useless information. In this passage, the third reason for focusing our faith on Jesus is found at the end of verse 2. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now that's a grand truth. We confess it regularly. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty. Uh, we know this truth. So what? What difference does it make to the readers of Hebrews back then or now, to these Jewish saints in the face of the terrible trouble who, who were losing heart, or to us who in the face of our troubles, which seem to have no end, what difference does it make that, that, that Christ is uh, uh, not just some founder of our religion whom we revere, but that he is the living, risen ruling Lord of everything. What difference does it make? Well, the difference it makes is, therefore, he's able to help us. He's able to help us. Now, there are at least three ways in which that's true that I can think of, and maybe more. In the exaltation of Jesus, we understand that he's able to help us in that he defines that the way of suffering is the way to glory. That's exactly the opposite of what is constantly set before us in our culture. The world assumes that the greatest glory will be found in the way of the greatest ease, in the course of least resistance, in the path of the greatest pleasure. But the opposite was true for Jesus. Through his humiliation, he was exalted. Through his suffering and death, he was glorified. And so the Lord tells us to keep the faith expecting to walk the same path. We hear that repeatedly in the scripture, for example, 1 Peter 4. Dear friends, do not be surprised 
at the painful trial you're suffering, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you're blessed, for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Then in Romans 8, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the glory is worth the suffering. We read there, I consider that this present suffering is not worth comparing with the glory which will be revealed in us. You see, the exalted Jesus helps us by demonstrating in his own life that the way of suffering with him is the path to glory as contradictory as that might sound to us. So keep your faith focused on Jesus. Secondly, the exaltation of Jesus also helps us for it affirms that he's in control. Our suffering, our long agonizing wait for justice is always made more bitter by the suspicion that no one is at the helm. That, that the evil of this world is out of control. Once we conclude that that's the case, we will immediately give up. Or we'll lay aside all our integrity and fight evil with even greater evil. But the fact that Jesus is risen from the dead and exalted to the right hand of the Father reminds us and affirms to us he's still in control. That's the clear declaration of Scripture. For example, in Ephesians 1, Christ was raised from the dead and seated at God's right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head of everything. Now, if Jesus is the reigning king, the ruler of everything, you don't have to worry that things are out of control. You may not have a clue what on earth he's doing. That's all right. You're not God. He is. That's why we have to trust him. But there's no question whether or not his sovereign plans are being worked out. Not just in the whole earth, but in you. That's the Spirit's reminder in this great promise, probably the greatest promise that we cling to from Romans 8. We know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Nobody's lost. From eternity past till eternity to come, nobody's lost in God's plan. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? So focus your faith on Jesus, the exalted 
leader, ruler, king of kings, he's able to help you because he is in control. Finally, the exalted Jesus helps us the third way, that he intercedes for us. He intercedes for us. This week I've been having a little pesky trouble with my computer. It has to do with the interaction of two different programs that uh, work with each other. Of course, the support people from both companies assume it's the fault of the other people who have the other program. All of which just reminds me of how frustrated it is to have no one to turn to. No one who actually cares about your situation. No one who actually stands ready to help you. They're just trying to shove you off. Now multiply that little problem exponentially and you have the human predicament. Our lives are full of problems. Some of them are of our own making. Some of them are, 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 are because of evil that's been done to us. Some of them are because of uh, circumstances which seem to have nothing to do with us, and yet we're caught in them. So where do we turn? Where do we turn? Never has there been a society with so many therapies and so many support groups, but somehow, often our problems just kind of don't fit the model for any specific support group or any kind of therapy, and we find ourselves saying, oh, I'm kind of the exception here. But the book of Hebrews, almost from the beginning, has held before us the help that we can expect to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ. Most notably, we read about it in chapter 4. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. We have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence that we may receive mercy and grace to help in our time of need. Oh, the wonder of this thought. Jesus is able to help us. For he understands that the road to glory goes through the valley of the shadow of death. Jesus is able to help us. For he's enthroned above all powers and authorities. He is in control. And Jesus is help, able to help us. For his ear is open to our cries. And he is interceding before the Father on our behalf. Generations and generations of God's suffering but persevering people have looked to the exalted Jesus for help. Their stories are recorded in lines of our great hymns. Just a few examples. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Or another one. Here I raise my Ebenezer, hither by thy help I'm come, and I hope by thy good pleasure safely to arrive at home. Another example. Other refuge have I none. None. Hangs my helpless soul on thee. Leave, oh, leave me not alone. Still support and comfort me. All my trust on thee is stayed. All my help from thee I bring. Cover my defenseless head with the shadow of thy wing. 
Focus your faith on Jesus. He is able to help you. Advent reminds us that we're pilgrims, folks. We get so comfortable. We assume this is home. But this is not our final home. We are always on a journey. Always on a journey. And so like all pilgrims headed somewhere, we need to stay focused on what's happening, where we're headed. Specifically, this text says, fix your eyes. Focus your faith on Jesus. Why? Because he is mankind's only hope. The author and perfecter of our faith. Because he focused on saving us. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Because he is able to help us. He sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. He rules. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Amen. Let's